Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up over the next hour, my guest today, Ben Ozog and Alexander Tizio, will be here to share their views on the weekend's, maybe even the week's biggest stories. Benno's got his tablet out uh, this morning. Uh, Benno, what have you got? You've also got some newspapers as well. Tablets and around three newspapers. There's quite some stories. We may talk about the Shangri-La dialogue in Singapore. And there's quite a story that in Ukraine we used to war of tanks, but it's also war of railways. That's quite an interesting documentary on that. Plus, I found in today's NZZ an outrageous local news story about a neighborhood just uphill from our studio, but more on that later. Very good. Keeping them in suspense. We're also going to be heading to the Balkans. I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in the Balkans, and I'll be rounding up the latest in the region, including Croatia's stay-at-home kidults and Slovenia's fake art fiasco. Stay tuned, listeners. Also, we're going to be heading to Lausanne to, of course, hear about a new innovative art district in that city. It's the 12th of June, 2022. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from an absolutely gorgeous Zurich uh, this morning. Uh, many of us have already been in the lake. Uh, it is a complete delight. Uh, of course, we had uh, a little bit of sort of rather inclement at the start of the week, but um, now it's beautiful. I'm back uh, from Milan. Beto's August here. Alexander's also here as well. Good morning to you both. Nice to see you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, let me uh, start with you, uh, Alexander. On, on a fine day like this, uh, when it's gorgeous, is it is it lake time? Is it rooftop time? Is it maybe uh, up to the uh, up to the hills to cool down a mm. bit? What will it be today? Brunch by the lake time. Rosé. R- Rosé all day kind of Sunday. That sounds perfect. Ben, and you? <laughs> well, top, I'm trying to top that. I'm usually a river person, so it's a bit... I find like there's two camps in Zurich, depending on where you live or what kind of, mm. I don't know, ideology you may have. Some people prefer the river over the lake. I'm a river person, so I should start that season. Okay, so this is, so please sort of define the two camps for us. I mean, you've set it up, so what? Some people, just, sure. the, sort of the static people who you know don't like fast-moving water versus those who... Obviously, most monocle people are lake people because the lake is just 50 15 meters from here. Um, and I don't know, I find most people from coming from out of town into the city at a weekend, they prefer the lake because that's an obvious lake, obvious draw. You can also take the boat or enjoy the view on the mountains, but more of the local residents who live... Um, along this lovely Limut River and enjoy a dip there. Um, they prefer that. And I find, even though I've relocated within the city, I haven't really changed camps, even though the lake is now closer. So okay. let's see. Listeners, what I think he's saying in code is um, <laughs> the, that the river is for... Um, the kinder, it's it's sort of it's it's for the younger crowd, uh, and and maybe you're, you're saying that the lake is, you know, more for, I don't know, I mean, just possibly, pe- but that's people. just your assumption. It, it is my assumption. It's also sort of what what I managed to see as well. And um, also today, I'm very happy uh, to say that uh, Guy Delaunay uh, is also with us. We haven't heard from him for a while. Uh, our correspondent, our man in the Balkans, uh, and he is in Ljubljana. He's also joining us this morning. No, Andrew Tuck this morning. Uh, Guy, good morning. Uh, so Andrew Tuck is, is somewhere in, in the, the Balearics, I, I imagine, but uh, we have the Balkans instead. Well, fair enough. You've got two Bs, uh, and I like the Balkans more, so that's fair enough, isn't it? Okay, well, when, when, when was the last time you were, um, when, when you were in maybe Ibiza or, or Mallorca, for that matter? Do you know what? It's never really appealed, um, but it's probably never well, I didn't really ask you whether it appealed um, or not. I just said, when was the last time you were and there? I wasn't, I wasn't there, so of course I'm going to prefer okay. the Balkans because it's what I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm missing out. Should I be heading to the Balearics instead of, uh, instead of sticking around in the Balkans? 
No, because you're going to tell us all about the delights of the region uh, and why we should be there uh, this summer. Now, uh, we're going to come back to you in, in one moment, though, because um, there's so much to get through um, this morning. Uh, and you probably heard that uh, guy as well. Um, we, we're, we have delights of Singapore maybe uh, ahead because, uh, of course, Beno teed us up. Shangri-La uh, conference is on at the moment. Of course, this is... Uh, you could say it's a sort of a major defense, geopolitical uh, security jamboree. And it's had, of course, it's not some easy few years, of course, that it's uh, been in Singapore as well. Not at all, indeed. And it's actually a reminder of where the biggest geopolitical challenges are actually happening, which is mostly in the Asia-Pacific, in the Indo-Pacific, even the terminology is disputed. Um, and there was a bit of an exchange between the Chinese defense minister and the, the American one uh, about exactly that, the kind of challenge that China poses, the threat to Taiwan that it may pose. Um, Volodymyr Zelensky made, made an online appearance as well, so reminding us of the more hot war, but everyone is still at the same time discussing, embracing ourselves for what kind of confrontation we may see in that region, and Shangri-La Forum is the central one. I'm sure Alexandra has a take on that as well. No, absolutely. And the exchange between the defense minister and uh, the Chinese defense minister and Lloyd Austin was quite interesting. Uh, and the Chinese defense minister, he didn't really say anything that we don't already know. So we know that China has aims to move on Taiwan. We, we know that they're willing to do so militarily if it comes to it. But there was a bit of a shift in his tone, um, at least from my my standpoint, there was a little bit more um, confidence in his tone. There was a little bit more belligerence to, to some of his rhetoric. Um, it didn't get picked up too much, but he sort of between the lines also said that the Taiwan Strait might not be international waters. Um, so really kind of responding, I think, in a, in a way that should be eliciting perhaps more uh, of a response from Western Western actors that have, um, you know, a strategic interest there beyond, you know, thoughts and prayers and, and concern. Um, and, you know, Lloyd Austin, he also made a remark that to the extent that the U.S. would be and is, you know, in a position to support and provide capacity should it come to it. Um, but I do worry a little bit about the ability of particularly the U.S. to to step in and provide support. I mean, if you look at the, the Chinese Navy, it's, it's the biggest in the world now, biggest not only in terms of number of ships, but also the ability of the Chinese to concentrate them. So the U.S. Navy has around 300 ships and they're more or less kind of scattered here and there on the East Coast and the West Coast, um, so not as concentrated. Um, and marshalling that kind of power, um, I don't think is as easy um, as as um, Secretary of Defense Austin made it sound yesterday. So lots of interesting things coming out of Shangri-La. Also, the, the Japanese Prime Minister um, or the Japanese Defense Minister, also Prime Minister, both really kind of speaking quite um, vocally and, and raising the, the alarm over, over Taiwan. Japan, South Korea, and and the U.S. have have you know started to I think think more strategically about um, what kind of command centers, what kind of cooperation needs to be um, developed or bolstered in that region. So lots of different things. I can keep going, but <laughs> I'll uh, but, leave it there. But I want to ask you just um, because this is, well is this a, a reset moment also just for the the the, the Shangri La um, summit um, in the same way that we saw a bit of a Davos reset the very, uh, of course, different collection of characters and players who are there. Um, but is this also a, a moment for 
yeah, in terms of this being a platform for discussion um, and and hopefully constructive dialogue as well, um, is this a bit of an amping up moment for them? And and yeah, uh, and yeah, and I guess also Sing- you know, it's interesting because Singapore plays host, uh, but Singapore is also very much an actor uh, in this corner of the world as well. Very much so. I'm I'm pretty sure like this this edition of the Shangri La Dialogue is also dedicated to putting the dialogue and and Singapore back on the map to reconvene everyone to kind of fast forward because we've missed out on the past two years essentially but things have been moving um, and you're quite right Singapore is of course an actor in all of that and and it's an interesting setting in the entire region because whereas NATO for example in, is focused on Europe and has very very formal alliances with all kinds of stipulations. It's way murkier and more fluid and flexible in in the Indo-Pacific, as in the certain initiatives driven by the US and the UK, AUKUS, for example. Um, there's some kind of talk about alliances of democracies and so on. And there's these, um, as Alexandra hinted at, these certain reassurances for, for places like Taiwan and, and similarly South Korea and Japan. But it's not as clear, it's not as formalized. And obviously the, the enemy there, China, the competitor, uh, is way more powerful than Russia and Europe. This creates a very tricky picture. So it really comes down to analyzing what how tones have been changing. And in the end, it's all about believing whether, let's say, US commitments for the region are, are real, whether they would come to some some places' defense, um, but that isn't quite clear. So that's, I guess, why these four are so key to actually meet and hear these undertones and hear these nuances in all of that. That's essentially what diplomacy is like and a lot of signaling going on, of course. I want to bring it uh, back, uh, Lisa, let's go westbound uh, from Singapore, bring it uh, closer uh, to Europe. Guy, maybe just give us um, a taste of flavor if I was to, of course, tune into um, one of the broadcasters, whether in Croatia, uh, if I if I jump to Serbia, um, I can imagine maybe what the tone might be in Slovenia. But when you compare and contrast uh, the, the news output from your region, from the Balkans patch versus what you see on, of course, maybe the global channels, what is the tone um, like when it comes to covering the conflict in the Ukraine? Well, I mean, in Serbia in particular, there's a, there's an obvious contrast because the media in Serbia has taken this almost Alice through the looking glass sort of view of what's been going on. And if you look at what's happening in the media and the broadcast media as well in Serbia every day, it's presenting things in a way which are very favourable to Russia, not in a way which is favourable to Ukraine or looking at what the Western powers are doing to support Ukraine, but rather how well Russia is doing, why Russia has been uh, taking the action it's taken in Ukraine, not describing it as a hostile inv- invasion by any means. And you're seeing that across most of the, the, the media in Serbia, whether that's broadcast, print or online. With the possible exceptions of there's a couple of broadcasters who don't do that. N1 is one of them, and the Danas newspaper would be another one which doesn't. RTS, the national broadcaster, tries to be a little less obviously partisan about things. And the interesting thing, of course, with Serbia in particular, is the degree of, of media capture that you have there, that the, the government has a strong influence, if not actual ties, to those out media outlets and the people who run them. And Guy, just if we think about, well, let's stay in Serbia for a moment, public sentiment, how much would would it chime with what one would be uh, watching on screen or or certainly reading um, in, in the pages? And, and, and yeah, do you see a marked division and, and do, do you feel that uh, in, in public discourse? 
Well, there's an interesting chicken and egg situation. To what degree does the public sentiment follow the media and vice versa? I mean, most people who analyse the media in Serbia tend to think that it's the media is promoting the lines the government wants to promote for whatever reason it wants to promote them. Then when you're looking at the surveys, the surveys most recently have been showing that a majority of Serbian people support Russia in the particular with its invasion of Ukraine, although they wouldn't term it as such. And they also support Serbia's continuing position of not imposing sanctions on Russia. Now, this is a, a more nuanced position than you'd suspect because, of course, Serbia has also passed or joined the resolutions in the United Nations which have condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. At the same time, it's not joining sanctions. It wants to keep its cheap gas with Russia and it wants to play to the sentiments of the people who are saying they support Russia and see Russia as Serbia's best partner. Mm. Ben, you teased a little story at the top, which uh, was not, as you said, it's not about tanks or howitzers. Uh, it's a story that you picked up on the power, the importance of rail uh, in, in all of this. Uh, a, a, a logistics story, uh, one would probably not look at rail as being sort of the sexiest part of this, but you have, you know, of course, every day we hear about uh, new material that needs to get delivered uh, across borders into the country and has to make its way across a rather large nation. Uh, but uh, tell us what you found. It's really that. There was a long read in this week's Die Zeit on exactly that, because if we think about it, people being evacuated from Ukraine, refugees essentially, um, grain being exported from Ukraine, weapons flowing in, while airports are closed and ports are blocked. So the two actually, um, the other avenues that exist for all kinds of traffic are closed, so every the entire burden falls on Ukraine's railway system, which is huge. It's 22,000 kilometers of rail across the country. I think they employ a quarter million people. Um, and in true Soviet fashion, they used to be quite reliable, run on train, uh, run on time. I've taken quite a few um, train rides in Ukraine myself. And now in a war situation, almost every day, there's rockets and missiles and artillery pieces hitting rails, hitting bridges and so on. So the article talks about what a struggle it is for Ukrainian railway to just maintain uh, their, their traffic, to maintain the supply lines that the Ukrainian army relies on so much. So one wonders during the day, there may be passengers during the night, there may be tanks um, flowing the other way across the country. And actually, it's been an institution that was in crisis before the war. There was a lot of corruption. There was old material, whether that is actual trains and locomotives or, or rail. Um, there were some oligarchs that had quite an influence on the Ukrainian railway as well and getting some very cheap, um, cheap rates for having their particular product transported. So huge challenge. And now, as many other institutions in Ukraine, they live up to this challenge and the country and the country's defense essentially relies on that. So somewhere in the article, the side talks about this is not just a war of tanks, it's actually a war of railways as mm. well. Because just to expand on that, um, Russia has, of course, the same issue. They've had their logistics issues um, and their railway system is quite key as well. That's why there have been some acts of sabotage against the Russian railway system as well. I just want to canvas uh, all of you, uh, just, and Benny, you, you teased this a little bit uh, earlier as well. Certainly it's been in the news, news headlines uh, pretty much everywhere. And this is, of course, a call uh, for, for more ammunition, um, a, a, a public call. And maybe this is the point I want to get at. With 
curious about this conflict is that, of course, there's a lot of back-channel dialogue, but then you have these public appeals, um, and this is very much a, of course, it's a certain type of, of PR play because, you know, you were touching earlier, Alexander, just this notion of maybe hearts and minds and uh, and all that goes with it. Uh, is there something a bit curious that we're this far into it now that that maybe we don't need these public appeals uh, because probably, you know, everyone probably recognize that there's, a, there's enough pressure uh, from, from all corners, you know, certainly not just the public, but also private sectors, vested interests in all of this as well. Does it seem curious that we're this far into the conflict and then we still have, yeah, almost these sort of public press releases that go out, you know, demanding uh, or call for more material? Yeah, I think yes and no. So uh, like you said, Tyler, I mean, I think those who want to or, or want to help Ukraine already have, there's the awareness there. So I think the main players um, are, are cued in. But I think perhaps, especially now as summer is descending on Europe, there is a little bit of war fatigue um, that has, I think, started to, to seep in. I think many Europeans are thinking about their beach holidays rather than conflict in, in, in the Donbass or or Ukraine more broadly. So I think that the appeals do still matter um, from that perspective to remind um, those in Europe, particularly that this is still ongoing and Ukraine does need help, whether that's ammunition or aiding refugees um, throughout Europe, whatever it might be. Um, but as you kind of hinted at, you know, I think, you know, Germany, Italy, the, the they've already more or less made their decisions. So the extent to which um, the appeals will, will shift uh, their perception, I think is kind of that shift has kind of sailed in my view. Guy, how do you read it, uh, these uh, yeah, public public appeals uh, that we see and you know, and they come from all corners and, and they, they almost come on a, on a daily basis as well? Well, I think there's been an interesting shift here in Slovenia because we've just got a new government installed here, which is a green centre-left government. And just as that's happened, um, just the other day, there was an appeal from a group of prominent academics and politicians, and this included two former presidents, Milan Kuchan and Danilo Turk, both of whom are on this sort of centre-left sort of side of things here, urging the new government to take a sensible stance on the war in Ukraine that would lead Ukraine and Russia to engage in serious peace talks, and they're calling for a new security architecture. And while acknowledging that Russia's invasion is a war crime, they say that arming Ukraine will prolong the war and hold Europe and the world hostage due to rising prices. So there's a shift in sentiment here. And there's an opportunity, obviously, for a shift in policy in Slovenia, which is, of course, tiny, two million people. It's not going to make a great deal of difference in the great scheme of things. But now we've got this new government here, which is seen as being very sort of uh, collaborative, very uh, on the right side of the EU values and all the rest of it. That, you know makes it a more influential voice than the previous government of Yanis Jansha, which was uh, widely seen as uh, not the kind of people you'd like to go drinking with. <laughs> Just uh, maybe your take on uh, not people you want to go drinking with, Benno, uh, <laughs> but but also how you see the PR game playing out. Uh, I think, as Alexander said, we, we do move into yeah, a, a season uh, where newsrooms are emptier and uh, and there's not as many parliament parliamentarians around in capitals around the world. Uh, how does it play out in, in terms of keeping 
the rhetoric going. Mm-hmm. I think there's always been a certain tension between these public appeals, particularly by Zelensky himself, to national publics, to national parliaments across the world and so on, and obviously what's happening behind closed doors in back-channel diplomacy and so on, where, where pleas are a bit more specific and the audience is a different one. But I think what, what Guy just explained about the Slovenian discourse is quite indicative. Of course, we've somewhat adapted, we have accepted that there is war in Europe, and we're also, I think, in there for the long game. This may take months or years to be either for fighting to continue or to actually be resolved at some point. We should brace ourselves. And Ukraine is quite terrified that because summer is setting in, because inflation is rising across the world, um, that they don't receive attention. And even this minimal support that they've received from certain places now will erode. There will not be funds and ammunitions flowing in as readily in the coming months and years. So I understand their desperate pleas somewhat, but m- sometimes they may not do themselves a favor by being by asking too much or being too radical or too uh, accusatory towards governments that they perceive as not helping enough. But this shift, as in Slovenia, as in other issues emerge, um, changes in government lead to changes of policy and perception of the war in Ukraine. I think that's normal. That's how policy, politics work. That's how media attention works. That's where, how our own attention for any context works. So we should kind of be ready for that, but also prepare ourselves. This may take ages. So it's not just one wave of solidarity. It should be kind of a constant policy to support Ukraine, to whatever extent possible. And if that's the expectation, it's also fine to focus on other issues, of course. Uh, Guy, I know that you have to make your way probably to the uh, the very uh, tiny stretch of the Slovenian uh, coast shortly, but you've sent us uh, a series of wonderful stories. We've got Slovenia's sham art shame. We also have Slovenia's scrapping of a border fence. But I'm interested in uh, who's still living at home. And it's Croatians who are still living at home. And this is across the whole of Europe. Um, according to this information from Eurostat, which has been compiled uh, by uh, the the website Landgeist. And uh, 80% of young adults in Croatia, aged between 25 and 29, still live in the family home. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, I knew the rate was high here in Slovenia. I knew about two-thirds of Slovenians aged 18 to 34 still lived with their parents. But uh, Croatia, that 25 to 29 age bracket... um, you call it failure to launch if you like, I probably would, but it's uh, it's indicative of the situation that we have across the Western Balkans. So three quarters of Serbians, about 79% of Montenegrins, again, Albania, Kosovo, North Macedonia, all about the 70% sort of line. People are not leaving home in, in, in this region, and they don't really answer the question as to why that might be. So we can speculate away. Well, let's speculate away. Is it because mama or, or, or granny's uh, cooking uh, is so fantastic? Is it because, um, it, I don't know, maybe there's a, a better thread count of, of, of linen because you've got uh, the old family supply? Speculate. I, Come on, Guy. What, what, I, yeah, I, I don't what's think your read it, I think when, you, when you peer out the window, whether it's in Ljubljana or whether uh, you, you, you might be in uh, Belgrade? Well, I don't think it is the, uh, the, the appeal of, of, of your mother's cooking or the, like, getting your washing done or anything like that, because the people in this region are great travellers. So there's an enormous diaspora of people from Serbia, Bosnia, Kosovo. Um, even Slovenians tend to go to places like Austria, Germany. People leave to go to university. People leave for, uh, for employment opportunities. So people living at home, I strongly suspect it's because of the economic situation they find themselves in. And in places like Slovenia, they're really trapped because, uh, and across former Yugoslavia, 
where we had the situation where there was public housing under the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, that was in a flash, in essence, privatised when Yugoslavia broke up. Now you have a situation where some families will own multiple homes because of you know, they've acquired them from family members who've died and so on and so forth, but there's very little on the market. So there's very high home ownership, very little on the market. It means young people are facing tremendous obstacles in terms of uh, finding their own homes, buying them. The rental markets are similarly catastrophic. And I suspect that's why people are failing to launch, as, as we would see it in a country like the United Kingdom, where 25% of young people, 25 to 29, are living with their parents, let alone Denmark, where it's only 4%. Guy, you've got less than 90 seconds before we head back to London for the news. Uh, so are we talking border fence? Or are we talking about uh, what's happened uh, with Slovenia's National Gallery? Well, I think the National Gallery is quite fun because uh, it's, it involves the, the director of the National Gallery resigning, uh, Pavel Tsar, his name is, uh, because he was going to put on an exhibition of a private collection packed with uh, Matisse and Kandinsky's and pa Picasso's until some art experts had a look at it and said, hang on a second, Lots and lots of these are clearly fake. Uh, you haven't done your work properly. And again, we come down to the change in government here. Pavel Tsar was uh, appointed by the previous government, uh, despite the fact that he was not uh, an art or fine art specialist. He was an IT specialist, and, and lots of people pointed out that he wasn't qualified to run a gallery, let alone one of the top institutions uh, in Slovenia. So he's now quit. He's arguably saved the new government, the, the, the hassle of trying to work out a process to remove him. Uh, in the meantime, the National Museum is now going to have to re re rebuild its credibility after, you know, event which is fairly embarrassing having to cancel a major exhibition literally on its eve guy delaney our man in the balkans thanks very much for that uh, now our woman in london with the news emma nelson thank you very much indeed tyler tens of thousands of protesters has gathered across the u.s to call for stricter gun laws it follows two mass shootings in the past month in which 10 people were killed in buffalo new york and the shooting dead of 19 children at an elementary school in texas the European Commission president has told Ukraine an opinion on its request to join the European Union will be ready at the end of next week. The comment from Ursula von der Leyen came during a progress meeting with President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kiev. China has told the US to stop provoking disputes after the Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin criticised what he called Beijing's aggressive approach to its territorial claims. Beijing regards Taiwan as part of Chinese territory and says it will smash any attempt to declare independence. And a seagull in Devon in the UK has worked out how the automatic doors work in a local branch of Tesco's supermarket, enabling him to steal up to £300 worth of crisps. The gull is so notorious that the locals have called him Stephen. One shopper filmed Stephen waiting for the automatic doors to open before heading inside and rushing out a few minutes later with a packet of cheese biscuits in his beak. It's thought he's stolen up to 70 kilograms of snacks. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Emma, yes. can the poor thing even take flight? That's that's the main question. I don't think it cares. <laughs> no, just, uh, I think it's uh, just found the buffet. It's wonderful. If you can look it up, because it does actually have a look of guilt on its face as it rushes out with the crisps in its beak. It's marvellous. Really? I, but I, have, I also have images of its tummy sort of dragging along uh, the pavement as well. <laughs> Well, there there might be that, but um, but frankly, I mean, it has the pick. I mean, of, of Tesco's snack department, and Tesco's does do a wide range of of, of snacks, and it uh, it goes for crisps now, and it goes for for, for cheese biscuits as well. So but, it's, it's, but not it's, that you would know anything about the Tesco snack department. Never, no, no. But I do. I would love to know what seventy kilograms of snacks feels like when you're when you're a seagull. <laughs>
<laughs> Emma, we'll maybe uh, catch up with you uh, before we're out with uh, this program. It's uh, just gone at 10.32 here in Zurich at the same time uh, in Berlin as well, where we're heading now, because I'm very happy to say we are joined by Christoph Amend, the editorial director at Zeit Magazine. Guten Morgen. Guten Morgen, sir. How are you? Well, I'm all good. Actually, uh, recovering a bit from last night because um, we were hosting um, our Zeit podcast festival for the second time now. And first time uh, with a live audience at um, Radial System, a very nice venue in Berlin. And, um, you know, as I'm co-hosting uh, this crazy podcast called Alles Gesagt, where we ask a celebrity guest uh, to to join us as long as he wants to join and talk. Um, uh, so we had uh, rock and roll star uh, Marius Müller-Westernhagen uh, as a guest, and we expected him to stay, he's in his mid-70s, we expected him to stay for maybe two hours, three hours. And at the beginning of the conversation, he announced that he would leave at 9 p.m. because he was going to watch the, uh, uh, the football game of the national team. And in the end, he, just, he he stayed for seven hours on stage. So I was home by two, and I'm still recovering from that. Yes. Anyway, well, thank you very much for joining us. Just maybe tell us that what what format that what form does this podcast festival <laughs> take that we're talking about seven hours? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, the the, the festival itself takes uh, took place the whole day. So you know, we are tight. We're currently. Uh, producing uh, over 20 podcasts and so to celebrate um, with our listeners um, this kind of big variety just as you have at Monaco you know from news podcasts to culture podcasts football podcasts and to this one we're we're invited we we are live streaming and we're selling tickets uh, for for this whole day but this podcast Alex Isaac I'm hosting together with Jochen the editor of Pride Online for nearly five years now. We came up with this concept uh, a couple of years ago because we were bored by the usual regulations of the, sort of the journalistic form of the usual interview. You know, either you don't have much, you know, enough time or enough space and you, you know, you face all these limitations. So we came up with this idea with no limitations at all. So we sit down with one guest, usually in the studio, and the guest is the only person in the room who can actually end the conversation. So we as the host have no clue if we're going to talk for an hour or maybe for three hours or only 25 minutes. So you have to prepare for a long conversation. But, you know, I have to admit seven hours was a really long time. We did even sing, by the way, uh, very badly, though. But, yeah. Well, I was going to say, you, there's, there's, you have to fortify yourself, um, I think, with, with many supplies of, of, of all sorts to, to get through that. I, I missed you in Milan, uh, of course. Oh, yeah. I, I, um, Salone is always a, a big moment uh, for Zeit Magazine as as well. Uh, of course, uh, this uh, furniture fair uh, is is very important uh, to I, well certainly to, to Germany uh, Incorporated when it comes oh, yeah. to yeah. Uh, design uh, as well as you know, we've we've also sort of seen you know Cologne uh, faltering a little bit. So mm-hmm. there was an extraordinary um, gathering this this week uh, from all over the world. But I'm wondering just your impressions. Of course, you know we were there. I was amazed to see Japan is back. Uh, the U.S. is certainly out uh, in in full force, and and the city was really really felt like it was on fire in a very good way. I totally agree. I mean, uh, when when uh, the, the Salone people hosted this kind of improvised version of the of Salone in last September, which in a very Italian way, they, of course, they called the Super Salone. Um, the Italians at the time in September were just 
sort of, you know, leaving their apartments and houses again, going out on the streets. And when we were hosting, you know, our um, Monday night Salone event at Barbato, which we've been doing for the last couple of years, um, they were, you know, sort of a little bit nervous still and, you know, trying to uh, adapt to, you know, meeting people outside of Zoom again. Um, and I totally agree with you. This Salona felt like the city was on fire, which you could also uh, see when uh, when you were trying to book a hotel room. Uh, you know, prices were on fire as well. Um, but the the general mood was really, really good. And people were coming in from all over the place again. Um, and you could really feel that, you know, the, the small galleries were active, the big brands were present. So... I, I agree. It was a really, really good feeling, and artists from all over the world uh, were coming in again. You know, galleries opening up, exhibitions. Um, so yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it was good to be back at the Real Salone. Just tell me uh, for uh, our listeners uh, who may not have uh, grabbed this week's uh, edition of uh, the newspaper, and of course uh, pulled out uh, your wonderful supplement. Uh, what's what's on the the front cover? Uh, what's what's the big feature this week? Well, the cover story of Tide magazine this week is is a uh, long conversation and a, a photo spread with Zhu Kwan, who's a Korean-American photographer, and she was sort of the witness uh, in the in the 90s in New York, especially also in LA, when sort of the new wave of hip-hop stars was born. And she was, you know, she's been covering um, the American hip-hop scene since since that time. And um, my colleague Johanna Suchek uh, made a, you know, had a long conversation with her, and she kind of shared some, some also some business secrets uh, of, of people like Jay Z. So you know, he asked her about, you know, says you've, you've been meeting the young Jay Z uh, a couple of times. So you know, what was his secret, and uh, or how were these encounters? And she said, well, the one thing that comes to my mind when I think about meeting him, that Jay Z always came. Yeah, arrive 15 minutes ahead of schedule and most of the times with no entourage totally focused on what he was doing so um, you know maybe trying to learn from that arriving 50 minutes ahead of your time working on that though interesting uh, because it's it's almost the opposite of what you would expect because you would think there would be a lot of black escalades uh and yeah an, an enormous entourage uh, so that's that's in this week's edition uh, of course you'll be heading off uh for the the summer season soon that always means though for list uh, for, for certainly for readers uh christoph that uh, you always have some wonderful tempting uh treats uh, in store as well but if we look ahead to what's going to be happening with autumn uh new new supplements uh you know you've teased us uh, that there's going to be a little bit more print innovation um anything uh, that you can share in terms of trade secrets, uh, what we can expect? Well, uh, we're actually working on a whole new project. You know, we've launched our food magazine, Zeitmagazin Wochenmarkt, in September last year, and uh, the second issue has come out uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we're currently working on the new uh, uh, edition of our international issue, which will come out uh, in September as a big book. Um, you know, 260 pages with the best stories that we've done in the last couple of months. And there's actually a very big new project that we're working on um, that we um, hopefully will launch uh, last next year about, um, you know, it's going to be like a digital and print um, project. Um, 
and I'm afraid I can't share any more information. Oh, I thought I we'd catch you in a vulnerable <laughs> moment this morning after your podcast <laughs> festival, and you would you would tell I us knew, you. <laughs> I, I knew you had a secret plan, Tyler, when you invited me. I had a feeling. Okay, well, listen, we, we will, uh, we, you know, I, I can keep a secret. I'm sure we will uh, meet on a beach lounger uh, or there'll be uh, some outstretched towel somewhere over the coming months. And uh, at, maybe at that point, uh, yeah, with, uh, with the right summer drink, uh, we can find out more. Uh, Christopher Ahmed, always very good uh, to talk to you. Uh, editorial director of Zeit Magazine uh, in Berlin. When we come back, we're going to be heading to Lausanne to talk uh, about a new cultural institution. But in the meantime, a short break. Heston's has, for more than 170 years, been facilitating a good night's rest, a quality that's prioritised by award-winning Sydney-based industrial designer David Kayon. He knows that getting a good night's sleep is key to improving his creative process. We have a saying in our household which is, sleep begets sleep. It's a saying that became prominent as we started on our journey of raising children. Essentially what it means is that good sleep is a habit it's a habit that requires effort and perhaps even some ritual. Being well rested is so important to creative thinking and getting the most out of your day that I think it's a habit well worth getting into. Head to Heston's.com now to learn more about how a good night's rest helps David Kayon and the world's creative and business leaders too. Heston's, be awake for the first time in your life. back with Monocle on Sunday. It's just uh, 10.41, almost 10.42 uh, here in Zurich. And I'm very happy to say that Ben Ozog is back. He has a new nickname as well. That's not my fault. Uh, it's uh, our sound engineer, Desi, called him Big Benno. But um, hopefully that name is not going to, to stick uh, too much. Uh, also, uh, Alexander Tietzio is here uh, as well. Um, and I was just going to say just very, very quickly, um, there was a story that Emma, Emma was talking about. It's been fascinating watching these... Uh, rallies, uh, protests across uh, the US, uh, certainly when it's new, no, well, yet, yet another call, or whether it's an ongoing call, of course, for uh, more informed gun control. But it's amazing you think about a nation where we're talking about hundreds of millions of people, but we're talking about only tens of thousands of, of protesters. Uh, and this, of course, comes off the back of, of what's happened in, Bu in Buffalo. But when you look at it from this side of the Atlantic, uh, your view on that, uh, because on one side we have, there's, it's, it's unfortunate to say there's a news fatigue around it. Uh, the dialogue, the narrative, uh, you see, we see that something doesn't, is not really moving. But tens of thousands versus millions of people? Uh, or was it just was not pulled together and doesn't have the, well, in a way, this lobby does not have the organization around it, of course, that the NRA has? Yeah, I think part of it is is that that this this organization just doesn't have, um, let's say, the the internal structures or the ability to mobilize on on such a large scale. And I think it's a combination of of factors. What you alluded to, part of it is is fatigue um, around the the issue more more broadly. So I think, you know, there is a realization and an appreciation that there is a need for stricter gun control. Um, but whether taking to the streets will necessarily, you know, bring about that change, I think, you know, 
the ones that have taken to the streets think yes, and then everybody else staying at home says, uh, you know, thinks the other. Um, but I think rather than the on the ground protests, what has um, evolved since Uvalde, since Buffalo, are more localized, let's say, state campaigns um, to put pressure on local state representatives, congressmen, members of the House um, to, you know, try to mobilize uh, in that way. I know the state of Massachusetts has one and there are smaller nonprofits that have been popping up around the country to, to try to, you know, shift the conversation and, and actually shift gun control laws through that, uh, through those avenues, more so than, you know, taking to the streets. Uh, so, I mean, Alexander, you're with your senior fellow at the at the Atlantic Council. You know, Benno, obviously, uh, of course, your patch is is very much the world of security in general. I just wanted your view. This is uh, it's maybe a bit of a the, the the culture sort of you know book shift part of of the program. But we've seen a wave of titles come out in the United States right now, trying to draw parallels uh, of what happens uh, when a nation starts to approach civil war uh, and and now. You, know, you could argue on one side rather cynically that these are you know, a series of books just in time for summer, uh, and, and these could be you know, interesting beach reads. Uh, you know, the flip side is also that uh, one should take all of this uh, quite seriously as well. From your position, when you're dealing with U.S. institutions, et cetera, do you, do you feel this division better right now that, that I mean, we're not a sort of crisis stage people you know, running for arms, but I think we do look at a more, a more divided uh, America in in many ways. Um, but uh, should we be in the position where there's five books out on the topic of what uh, <laughs> civil conflict could look like mm. in this country? Yeah, one wonders about these uh, bestseller lists of books sometimes, whether they are super timely or it's a coincidence and so on, because all of these factors that you raise are not new, of course. A polarized political system, a country awash in guns, gun violence, the rise of right-wing militias, for example, a few years ago <clears throat> under Trump, but even before under Obama particularly was, was a big topic. If we talk about any other country with these kind of factors... Yemen or so, we talk about failed state. Um, and then even the, the fact that US democracy is in quite some crisis as well. How democratic is it still in, in times of gerrymandering by every side, where maybe one one can can agree in Congress about support for Ukraine against, against the Russian aggressor. But apart from that, there's hardly anything that seems to unite. So can I and maybe that's why these 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 books being sold currently are indicative because the perception of division is ongoing and with every single crisis it's it manifests itself so so strongly but it's it is quite worrying one doesn't have to expect a civil war and like armed violence anytime soon armed violence to an extent is already there um and we don't need Maybe there's another flashpoint because currently there's there's another debate about the capital storming of course, which is being dealt with right now so and that it wasn't too, too long ago. We've kind of forgotten about it, living in this ideal paradise that Biden is back. But yeah, campaigning has already started. Just uh, before we head uh, down to Lausanne uh, very quickly, just your take on that, because you're sitting in your sunny perch uh, here on this side of the Atlantic looking looking back. And uh, of course, as, as Ben was saying on one side, yeah, uh, armed conflict to to one level is uh, is is already there, and of course, you know, again, wh whether this is the PR machine uh, of, of very uh, clever publishers and authors, uh, you know, pushing uh, this message, uh, there there is something 
percolating. I think there's definitely something percolating. I agree with Benno. We're not moving to the armed conflict um, stage anytime soon in some senses. It's, it's already there. And you know, as, as Benno alluded to, many of these factors have also been there for a long, protracted period of time. I think the one thing that has um, shifted in, in recent years and is growing more acute is the um, lack of trust on, on both, both sides of the aisle in institutions. So around the Supreme Court, around government more broadly, around media. So I think many Americans from both sides of the spectrum are kind of in a way lost. They're, they're grappling for, for where to find, where is the truth. And, you know, as is human nature, people seek the truth down their, their rabbit hole and you have the echo chambers that is driving this polarization. Um, so I, I think that there is something to all of these books being released at the same time. I don't think we're heading towards armed conflict, but it's definitely striking at a chord um, that's simmering under the surface. Okay, I'm going to give you both homework, and uh, you each have to read read two to three of them, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll come back uh, on that. Uh, heading uh, a little uh, south from where we are uh, in Zurich at the moment, because next weekend marks the end of a lengthy building period uh, for the Platform 10, or Platform 10, uh, which is an arts district in Lausanne. Uh, the platform's a unique area in Switzerland. It's going to bring together three museums and two foundations on an area of almost 25,000 square meters uh, and very close uh, to the rail station. Anyone who's uh, been uh, past Lausanne railway station over the past few years will uh, be very familiar with the construction that's been going on. I'm very happy to say that Patrick Geiger is the director general of the platform and he joins us this morning uh, from Lausanne. Good morning. Bonjour. Bonjour. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, so at, at long last, uh, I think so many have been tempted, uh, whether you're coming up from Geneva, coming down from Zurich. Uh, of course, we've seen uh, the, the evolution uh, of, of this uh, structure. We're, maybe just start, uh, Patrick, by telling us where does this, uh, where will this fit within the cultural institution landscape uh, within Switzerland? Well, I think we, we aim to be um, the, um, the center, really, of uh, of cultural and artistic practice and uh, display in Western Switzerland, French-speaking Switzerland. That's the that's the goal, and I think we have the means uh, for that. Given we have those two very impressive buildings um, and three museums, two foundations, um, it's a it's a whole district. It's a neighborhood really. We have two cafes, two restaurants, and and all kinds of outside spaces also. So I think we're the the ambition is quite. Uh, quite big. And when we look at the programming uh, that is going to, to go into this and maybe just tell us that, so this this incorporates uh, which three museums are there and and maybe what, what will be the breadth of the of the cultural offer? Initially, uh, it's an art, visual arts uh, offer. So the three museums we have uh, is the, um, the Continental Museum of Fine Arts, uh, the Elysee Museum for Photography and the MUDAC, which is a museum for applied art arts and contemporary design so all in in a, in a spectrum which is you know in the visual arts uh field but the idea is to create dialogues between those institutions and also of course to add a few layers of other practices uh performance music uh live theater um you know when we have started already doing that we have invited uh that the video which is know one of the most interesting french-speaking theaters um and we have invited them to to do projects with we we are partnering with uh the lausanne underground uh film festival for projections and music we are so we are trying to be um 
at the center of a network and invites not only the audience, but also other institutions uh, and partner institutions, some some of them being very small or alternative. Uh, so we open we are opening up the, the neighborhood to to many people. So on the topic of, of opening up the neighborhood, because you've really you've created a, a Katia, you've created a quarter um, in, in many ways uh, with this. Uh, was that yeah, I, I obviously at a point when you had to raise funds uh, and from both, I guess, the, 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 the public sector and the private sector was was really the, the mandate and the mission uh, to, to have this position in Western Switzerland, uh, as you say, um, to, to, to be this hub, but that it couldn't be a, a series of parts that this that this had to become a community, a, a neighborhood rather than a series of standalone institutions. Yes, uh, but it's not. It wasn't the case initially. Initially, it was really they they were looking to move the Fine Arts Museum to another location. It, it was housed in a in a fairly old palace in the center of town, which was absolutely not fit for displaying um, contemporary art or, or even kind of older uh, masters. Um, so, so they found that's that's. Uh, space near the station, which was an invisible neighborhood. It was completely uh, close to the public. It, it was the, the former industrial um, um, environment, the closer tracks where they used to repair uh, the trains. And so it was it was a worker's environment only for the people in the in the, the, the railway uh, environment. So once they decided to, to settle in that neighborhood, they they saw it was actually huge and they, they could actually do more than bring one museum and there were other institutions that needed uh, relocation um, among which uh, the Musée de Lisée, which has a million really a million documents and photographs and so it's a, a very prestigious and very important uh, photographic institution um, for for Europe really and um, once they had decided to, to bring together those three museums then they they thought and that I think the, the ambition is there, and the, the main idea, the main drive, I think, that at least what motivates me is to to have those that dialogue between institutions, because the three museums are now part of one foundation which runs the whole uh, district. So, yes, the mandate now is to create something which is lively, uh, which is open to to wide audience, and to keep questioning the role of museums in society. Uh, we have we have seen, uh, of course, with the pandemic, how people change their the way they consume or experience culture, and we've seen a drop uh, in uh, in attendance in cinemas, in theaters, in museums. So we have to be part of this redefinition of the role uh, of, of a cultural institution and arts institution in society. And Patrick, just before we go, uh, as I said, anyone who has been uh, zipping in and out of the station over the past few years, uh, there's there's very much an architectural statement uh, here uh, as well, because uh, the building uh, or the structures are are, are, are very uh, alluring. Uh, maybe just to tell us uh, just ver very briefly um, the the participants um, in involved uh, and uh, and and yeah, the, the form uh, that of course that they were set to deliver. Well, the, the buildings, there are two buildings, uh, really, one by um, architecture group Barrosi Vega uh, from Spain, the other one by, by uh, Iris Mateus from Portugal. And both are uh, made of concrete and are extremely strong statements and, and quite difficult buildings, really, to, uh, to attract people, to, to be honest, because they are 
they they are very imposing as uh, in their form as an cultural institutions they they are traditional in that sense so they they, they are also landmarks they want to be iconic uh, so that's you know a, a very positive aspect also in a way because they are completely transforming the environment where they were they're not subtle they are not um, um, uh, um, small they are very big they're massive and they're very present yeah i was going to say absolutely attractions very much uh, in their own right well of course the platform these platform 10 uh, will be opening uh, of course uh, over the uh, over the coming week uh, patrick geiger there the director general uh, joining us uh, from lausanne um benno uh, of course you probably have i don't know how, how often you get down to, to lausanne maybe you maybe you miss them or not not as often as i should yeah no? well anyway that's your that's next weekend uh, so, sorted uh, <laughs> for you okay while we have you you tempted us at the start of the program uh you have a little story you said it's, it's up the hill just to re- remind our listeners uh, what, what's happening nearby. Yes, indeed. It was an oddly long read in, in NZZ, one of Switzerland's major newspaper, where lo- very local news don't make headlines too often, but this one did. So just uphill from a Monocle studio here in Zurich is Römerhof, Roman court. Actually quite a nice, quaint little little square. There's, there's a road passing by, a tram, a tram stop, um, and the Dolderbahn, a funicular, going further uphill as well. So a lovely place, but an outrageous scandal. Um, has happened there because residents are infuriated that there has been an addition to this square, a monstrosity was erected that ruins the entire aesthetics of the square, people say. A vending machine. Yes. Your average vending machine, or our Japanese listeners, where vending machines are ubiquitous. Like, so well, yeah. well, well, wonder. And our Kiwi listeners say it's not like, you know, a bucket fountain <laughs> either. So Exactly. It's exactly your regular kind of vending machine selling the likes of snacks and Snickers bars and maybe baby pregnancy tests and so on, which was erected. But because it's, well, this box in the middle of the square, um, it's bright red. People say that it ruins this nicely refurbished Römerhof Square. And one really wonders, in times of inflation, inequality and war in the world, um, apparently this is what mobilizes people. And now Zurich City Parliament will have to deal with that issue because there were complaints. So the vending machine that may start a civil war as well, it's out there. It's just uphill. You can have a look at uh, this next new political crisis. Certainly in this uh, this quarter uh, as, as well. Uh, Emma, uh, back back in London, uh, any, any quick thoughts uh, on that? I mean, I, I wouldn't mind if we had a vending machine out in front of Midori House. I'm no fan of vending machines. I was in France this week in Paris and I found that everything... I was in um, Charles de Gaulle Airport and I found it practically impossible to get food because everything had gone to a vending machine. I'm no great fan, can I be absolutely honest. Okay, Alexander, quickly, five seconds or less. I'm I'm with Emma. Not such a fan. (laughs) Not such a fan. Okay, well, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, Alexander, dear, it's your Ben, it's all Guy Delaney, Emma Nelson back in London. Thanks very much. Also, Christoph Ahmed and Patrick Geiger down in Lausanne. Our producers today, Desiree Bendley and Emma Nelson, our studio manager in London was Desiree Bandley again and also Nora Hall over in London. I'm Tyler Brule. Monocle on Sunday is back very same time uh, next week. I'm sure you'll hear from me across the week. Have a lovely Sunday and a good week ahead. Goodbye. <laughs>